0: Alright, welcome back to the Millennium Wine Group podcast. Um, Hope everybody's doing well out there. I have a little bit shorter episode for you today, but it's just the thought that runs through my head from time to time, and it reflects the title of this episode, which is Don't Be a Vintage Whore. Um, I know that sounds kind of funny the way I said that, but there has become a contingency of wine drinkers who rely solely on what magazines... Tell them is good, and what magazines tell them is bad now it's not like I just disagree completely with magazines opinions on wine because I think in a lot of ways they can be beneficial to help you figure out what wine might be best for you, what regions uh, they feel are prominent, what producers they do enjoy, and a lot of there there's a lot of truth there. but what I don't like are people who become obsessed with the vintage of the wine because realistically. Most people, if you were to put two vintages side by side in front of them, blind, they would have no idea what they were drinking, to be honest. I mean, really, I mean, unless they are, you know, trained in blind tasting, and even then, do they even know what they don't like about vintages that people say are inferior or superior? I think California, especially Napa and Sonoma, are great reflections of this. So, a few years ago, I was at a trade show for a distributor here in Nashville, and I sat in on a panel or a little sort of class discussion with a master sommelier, and they poured four wines for us blind, four red wines from Napa. They didn't give a particular vintage, and they didn't tell us what the wines were going to be, of course, only other than they were Cabernet, and we tried them, and... There was a range of a few. I believe there was Kendall Jackson, there was Faust, there was Jordan, and there was one more, which I can't remember what it was. Um, At the time, I picked the Faust as the one I liked the best. Some people picked Kendall Jackson, a few people picked Jordan. It was a mixed, uh, mixed bag. But afterwards, when the Master Sommelier decided to talk to us about why we chose the wines we chose, It became interesting very quick to see the people that made decisions based on palate instead of label, because obviously if you were to put the Kendall Jackson in front of the wine snobs, you know, there's no way that they would enjoy that wine. They're already determined in their mind that there's no way that they could enjoy it. Um, The same way that you put, you know, a bottle of Camus in front of a, a California wine drinker, Silver Oak, and and no disrespect to those wines because those wines definitely have their place and they can be good, but when that's all that people drink and that's all that their range of of sort of experiences, um, they're not qualified. (laughs) They're not qualified, but uh, people automatically assume those wines are going to be good because they have elements in them that people enjoy, a lot of fruit and a lot of sugar, and that's kind of something we can touch on a little more in a minute, but Back to this panel discussion, this master sommelier is talking to us about the different wines. And I raise my hand and I confidently say, well, because some of the wines were from 2008 in this vintage. Um, there might have been an 07 in there, but I go, isn't 07 the best wine of the decade? Talking from 2000 to you know, 2009. And the master sommelier is like, well, you know, that's kind of a matter of opinion. That's, uh, I mean, to you, 07 might be the best. To somebody else, 08 might be the best. To somebody else, 05 might be the best. Uh, And he was absolutely right. It was immediately kind of humbling and pretty, not just straightforward, but it's sort of like, yeah, like, duh, you know, the light bulb went off, of course. You know, if you really sit back and think about it, a a vintage and recent history in Napa, 2011 is a vintage that a lot of people say is inferior because of rainfall and uh, they struggle to ripen as, as, as easily as they could have. Well, you know what? I love 2011. I love it because in some of the wines that I've tasted, there's more elements that reflect a, a balanced wine of earth, you know, um, of, of Bordeaux in, in some ways. And I'll say too, I had an interview on here a while back with a winemaker out of California. If you go back into our archives, uh, Doug Schaefer, and he said that basically, you know, from year to year, every year is pretty much a good vintage in California. I mean, the, the good winemakers who knew what they were doing didn't have a problem with the eleventh but the magazines, you know, they rate it 92 instead of 94 or 91 instead of 96. And the consumer gets it in their head that there's no way they could drink this unpalatable wine. No way. And so... They make decisions based purely on vintages based on opinions in magazines when they could very well they, – they could very much love that wine and they'll never give it a chance because they convince themselves that they can only drink the perfect vintages. Uh, now, I think this could apply a little better in other parts of the world. I think in, in the old world, you know, especially – in somewhere like France and Bordeaux, you know, nine and ten is are heralded as as, as benchmark vintages, some of the best in the last fifty years. Of course, 80, 1982 is a vintage that is infamous uh, for being extremely high quality. So I'd say maybe on the ageability of those wines long term, you know, you crack both those bottles after 30 years and that really solid vintage is gonna hold up. And I'd say to some extent the same thing in Napa could be true. But A vintage like the 11 in Napa, which would have a higher acid quality to it, would have more acid, would have, you know, maybe a slightly lower alcohol percentage. That wine's going to age way longer. Let's open that side by side in 30 years with the 2012. We'll see which one lasts longer. You know, I, I think about like the 97 vintage was like the turning point in Napa for a lot of just over the top bombastic fruit. And I think of those wines, they burn out hard and bright. You know, it's like lighting a flare. You know, they're intense for a short period of time and then they're gone. But you look at the 98 vintage now, and the 98 vintage is held up a lot longer in a lot of cases than the 97 has. And that was a vintage that was touted um, as to be not nearly as complex, or not even complex, but just as it didn't receive the accolades, the 100-point scores, uh, which just kind of irritates me because At the end of the day, right, I mean, you can get as snobby and as elitist as you want about wine, but why? Just enjoy yourself, you know? Enjoy the experience of trying different vintages. Have a good vintage. Have a vintage that's considered an off-vintage. You know, I guarantee you there'll be things that you like and you don't like in the off and the on-vintages, both side-by-side. I had a a guy that was in town from Dallas in the restaurant I was working in, and, and I live in Nashville. I live in a city that's growing. I live in a city that the population is slowly changing. Um, There's southerners that live here. There's people that are native Nashvilleians. There's people that are coming here from all over the world uh, all over different parts of the country and they bring their experience, their palates, their dollars with them. And you'll have some people that enjoy drinking wines from all over the place and you have a lot of people that still just enjoy drinking one type of wine. Now I'm not you know, the the they say the variety is the spice of life, right? You want to try different things. The more you try, the more you know, right? And not only does it give you more experience as a drinker, but it opens up new doors for you, right? I mean, if you've never tried something before, how do you know whether you like it or not? You're just going to stick to the same thing time after time because that's what you know and you're comfortable with. Push yourself out of your comfort zone. That's how you grow, not only as a drinker. I know that sounds funny to say, but as an experienced drinker. But that's how you grow in life. I mean, we can get really esoteric with this and and nerdy. But you look at the demographic, or at least the demographic I deal with, they only drink Napa Cabernet. Now, it sounds like I'm here to dog Napa Cabernet today. I'm not. I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up going to Napa. I go to Napa every time I go back and visit because there's some wineries and there's some wines that I love there. There's some amazing people that are farmers there that do a great job. There's some wines that are super over the top, you know, dosed with mega purple, added residual sugar, and that caters to a lot of people's palates. Now, I think that we live in an age where if you're a wine drinker that is just getting into wine, you will open a bottle from Napa and that $50 to $100 price point that has the residual sugar and the mega purple in it, and you're gonna say, wow, this is a great wine. Now, fruit and sugar on the wine is now equivocated with good. That's considered good. To me, it's a one-trick pony, right? It's like going to the gym and just doing chest all the time, right? You're going to have maybe like a great chest. And you're not going to have anything else that resembles that. And uh, and you're going to be completely imbalanced. And and we all know that to your overall health and wellness, it's not a good thing. The point is, is, is that... Not all wines that created a Napa have complexity. Now, if you're going for that, de- That's what you want. If you just want a big, bold Napa Cabernet, that's fine. Have a big, bold Napa Cabernet. But I think you owe it to yourself, especially if you call your... You know, if you're a wine drinker, because I people get so snobby about it. I guess is what I get really, ultimately, frustrated with. But that's all they know. They have no frame of reference. You can't talk to them about any other wine from any other part of the world, because all they know is Napa. And I just implore people that, you know, if you're going to act like an elitist, at least have some experience to back it up. And I don't advise acting like an elitist. I, I you know, of course, encourage you to just drink what you like, you know, and, uh, and, and don't be an asshole. I'm sorry. I'm going to swear. But really, ultimately, don't be an asshole about it. Um, so this guy comes into the restaurant and we're going over different vintages of Napa, of course, because that's all this guy knows. He knows nothing else. And he sees a wine. We agree on a wine, and I bring it over. And on our wine list, it's listed as a 2012. The bottle I actually bring him is a 2013 because, you know, here in Nashville, we don't have the allocation that other major city A markets have, you know, probably more of a B or C market. And so we get B or C market allocation, which means – Vintages run out quicker here, and vintages roll over more frequently than in a market that might get hundreds of thousands of cases. So it's a problem we deal with. So this guy, um, I present the wine to him, and he's like, oh, no, it's, I was looking for 12. I don't, I don't drink 13. And you're like, okay, you don't drink 13. Okay, why don't – why? I'm sorry. I, I was like, you know, we could – I didn't say this, but I was like, sir, you know, I did say this. I was like, sir – 2013 is considered to be just as good of a vintage as 12 and immediately him and his wife were like no it's not and I had to do everything I could from just like (laughs) just like blasting into this guy but I was like okay sir please explain to me why I actually said that I kind of like bit my tongue and I retracted a little more eventually but they tried to tell me 2013 was a too it was too hot. The vintage was too hot and uh and that's why. I don't know. They had pulled this out of their ass from some magazine out there and they decided that this was the truth. There's no way that they could pallet thirteen. I said <laughs> I bit my tongue. I didn't say let's put twelve and thirteen side by side and see if you can distinguish anything. You idiot. <laughs> but I didn't say that, of course. I went ahead and found him a twelve of another, you know, perfectly over, you know, ripe fruit bomb out of Napa, and he settled with that and and there you have it. So I went about in the back and I googled 12, 2012 versus 13 and in every article that popped up right away. It was that, that 12 and 13 were thought a lot to be like 9 and 10 in Bordeaux. There wasn't a whole lot of distinguishable differences. They were both just considered to be fantastic, which is great. Okay, great. But this guy had it in his head that there is nothing else that he could have drank. This is the only thing, the 2012 vintage. And... This is where I come to the term vintage whore. You're a coveted vintage whore. Uh, I've had people say stuff like, I don't drink Merlot. They they uh, There was a a blend of a wine that, that had Merlot in it. They don't drink Merlot. They don't drink anything but 07. They don't drink anything but 2012. You guys look like idiots. Anybody that really knows anything about wine, any experienced sommelier, would destroy you. And what I'm saying is, and I'm not trying to <laughs> just like beat anybody up, but... Get over yourself. Get over your vintages and try different things because ultimately, it does not matter. You're going to open inferior vintages. I've learned more, I feel like, from opening vintages that are considered inferior than I have from opening a perfect vintage. Or a vintage that's considered to be 100 points. Because it's bullshit. (laughs) That is somebody's opinion about that vintage. That is... That is something that those people agree in those wines that they think are great. But ultimately, it is an op- it is an opinion, right? I mean, you could agree, you know, that uh, that that a, a wine which is the perfect vintage for you, which is maybe slightly underripe with a touch of a a, a vegetal quality to it, an apple wine with higher acid, is the perfect vintage because that's what you love when you drink a wine. Now, if you love a fruit bomb, you're going to agree that's a perfect vintage as well, right? So, listen, I mean, Robert Parker's made a career. Wine spectator does it as well, and i'm not I'm not just dogging them once again listen i I think that you can learn something from the vintages. you can at least maybe go in with what to expect, but just because you're expecting it to be slightly uh, riper or underripe doesn't mean that you're not going to like those things once again. so this is a shorter podcast today i I just really wanted to encourage you wine drinkers out there to. Get vintages out of your head. If I go into a restaurant at this point, um, or I'm looking to buy wine online or whatever it is, I don't care so much about the vintage. I'm just curious about how much, how long the wine is aged at this point, just for for you know taster's sake. So I mean, you know, I could have a bottle a bottle that's 15 years old or a bottle that's 10 years old. And I don't really care about how the vintage was considered at the time. I'm curious about how the wine's drinking now. Just from an educational standpoint, I want to learn about the nuances of that wine as it evolves over time. Let's look at all these ripe vintages 10, 20, 30 years from now. I don't think these high alcohol, fruit bomb, low acid wines are going to hold up the way you think they will. And I... Get frustrated with the Napa elite, the 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 not the people in Napa, but the wine drinkers. They'll buy cases of big name Napa cab, and they will have never tried a French wine. They couldn't tell you anything. The guy told me, he goes, the guy that I had this sort of discussion with was like, oh no, my I know my wine, I know my wine. I was like, you know one wine, you don't know anything about wine. He even said he couldn't tell me anything about French wine. He, he couldn't tell me anything about Spanish wine, Italian wine, German wine, South African wine, Australian wine, Chilean wine, Argentinian wine. I mean, we could go on and on and on. I mean, what the hell do you know if you could <laughs> – it's like saying you, you're fluent in a language and you know three words. You know how to order a beer. You know what I'm saying? It's like saying, you know, una you know cerveza por favor and then saying you're fluent in Spanish. It's bullshit. So I don't know. I guess ultimately at the end of the day, get over yourself. Don't be a vintage whore. Don't be an asshole. Get out there and try some different wines. Learn. Gain some experience. Drink white wine as well. Let's just throw that in there. Anybody that says they only drink red wine, you suck too. (laughs) People say, I only only drink red wine. You only drink red wine because you've never had good white wine. You've never been open to the, the possibility of trying it. There's plenty of amazing white wine out there. and A lot of times, white wine goes way better with food than red wine. It's not as domineering. Uh, The acid, the complexity of it can complement food uh, in such a wonderful way. Drink white wine. Don't be a vintage whore. (laughs) Uh, But really, that, that feels like another episode at this point. But ultimately, man, just open up your mind to learning about something that you love. Go into it with no preconceived notions and just enjoy yourself and don't get hung up on the bullshit. Just enjoy yourself. This is a short little podcast today, but it's just sort of like the thought that had been rolling around in my head for the last couple of days, needed to get it off my chest and hopefully this may change your mind out there to some extent to not get so hung up on, on things that don't really matter and just enjoying the drinking experience. Um, as always, drink smarter, not harder.